Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers in writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Thank you, Gertrude and Ola listeners. Welcome back to Episode 59 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritzhughes. This weekend is a rather busy one for me, what with the West Virginia Writers' appearance at the West Virginia Book Festival in Charleston and all. That's going on October 22nd and 23rd at the Civic Center in downtown Charleston. Authors such as Dave Pelzer, Gerald Blaine, Jerry West, Jamie Gordon, and Lee Child will be present. Jamie Gordon, by the way, is the recent winner of a National Book Award for her novel Lord of Misrule, which is set in West Virginia. West Virginia Writers is producing an interview with her during the festival, which we will share with you here on this podcast very soon. The book festival itself, though, is free to the public, so come on down, meet the authors, attend some of the panel discussions, including one by West Virginia Writers on the subject of humor, and maybe buy a book or 12 at the used book sale next door. Stop by our table to say hi and pick up a hot-off-the-presses copy of the 2012 Annual Writing Contest Entry Form. We'll have both the adult form and the New Mountain Voices student contest form making their debut this weekend at our table. However, before I head out, I'm squeezing in a little bit of time to put together a podcast here. This week features a recorded live reading captured at the 2011 West Virginia Writers Summer Conference. It's of our very own second vice president, Granny Sue Holstein, recorded on Saturday afternoon of the conference. Longtime podcast listeners will recognize her name from previous appearances here. I'd give you more information about her, but West Virginia Writers President Kat Pleska has already done so for me. Okay, our next uh, reader is Susanna Holstein, also known as Granny Sue. Uh, an extraordinary woman, I'll tell you this, because I'm convinced that she can alter physics and she knows how to create the 48-hour day. Because if you read her blog, and it's a wonderful blog, um, then she has to have 48 hours a day to get all that done. It's just impossible. Um, uh, taking care of home and family and gardening and canning and preserving and just everything else. And she had taken beautiful photographs and writing about everything she encounters, one antiquing. And, and that was before she retired. And so she just recently retired. <laughs> and now she tells us that she's so busy she can't believe it. But uh, uh, I'll read this a little bit about, uh, further about Susanna, professional storyteller and writer whose performances frequently include Appalachian and British ballads. Susanna Holstein is a graduate of West Virginia State College and the University of South Carolina. Uh, Susanna makes her home in Jackson County, West Virginia, where she maintains three active blogs. Three, three, nine. Can't even get anything on one. Uh, and writes a monthly column for Tulane Living Magazine. Her work has been published by Mountain Girl Press, NSN Press, and various literary journals. Please welcome the incredible Susanna Holstein. 
old timers talk about things that people believed in and folkloric beliefs and some that may or may not hold true. I don't take chances myself. The old speak of things strange, of nails and trees and curdling milk, spells and hairballs and silver. Words from times and protections long past modern understanding or belief. Stopping blood with Bible verse and pulling the heat out of a burn in a way no school doctor would condone. Old ways from old times when what you had on hand had to do. You had to fix things yourself, even if those things were evil and witchery. We laugh nervously and say how quaint as the old voices whisper and the shadows drift behind us. Stop with poetry and read your story. It's called guard duty. Morning, make the bed and get dressed. Fix breakfast. Sweep the floors, do up the dishes. Get up, get up. There's one more day to get through. Her feet hit the cold floor. One more day. She hurried through the daily routine. Her work done, she opened the door and stepped out onto the porch. Her eyes swept the mountains marching into the distance below her cabin. This was the highest place in the county, and she could see for miles in all directions. As usual, the sun was just rising as she swept the porch, knocked mud off the boots, and lined them neatly by the door, beside the one clean pair already there. She sat in her rocker, the one he'd made her before. Before. Her thoughts dwelled there, in the time before the call to war. He had to go. He had no choice. She helped him pack, numb to the core as he discussed his will. You're the beneficiary, Mom, and power of attorney. I'll need you to take care of my bills. She smiled and waved as the troops rode out of town on the train. He did not see her tears. Those waited until he was gone. Get dog. The black dog looked at her for a defiant second and then skulked off the porch steps. The dogs knew. Every day they waited for him to step out on the porch and call to them. Feed them bits of bacon rind or leftover biscuits. Spoiled those old dogs, he did. She settled herself in a chair, adjusting the cushion on her back. Then she sat quiet, hands folded in her lap. The sun rose into the sky, the rooster began his morning calls, and the hens announced new eggs. She stirred herself, opened the porch gate, and made her way to the barnyard to gather eggs, do the milking, and feed the hogs. A few minutes in the kitchen, and the milk was strained and put up, the eggs washed. She dried her hands and once again went out on the porch and sat in her rocker. Where was he now? She strained her eyes as he passed the rolling mountains across the ocean to the center of Europe where his last letter had come from. Northern Italy it was. At least, that was where he had been when he wrote. But where was he now? His unit was moving, he said, but he gave no specifics about their destination. She tried to see him in her mind sitting perhaps with his friends at a coffee shop or riding in a jeep. Reaching into her apron pocket, she pulled out the wrinkled letter and read red words already burned into memory. Dear Mom, how are you? How's everything on the farm? Did you get Fred Williams to put up the hay? How about old Bess? Has she had her calf yet? I hope you're taking care of yourself and not worrying about me. I'm doing fine. I have some good buddies here and the food's not too bad. We're moving soon. I don't know where, but I'll write you as soon as I can. Your loving son, but Carefully, she folded the letter and put it back in her pocket. That was over a month ago, she thought. She should be getting another letter soon. He was good about writing to her. She already had a shoebox full of his letters. The mail would run soon, and perhaps today would be the 
rock, the chair following down the groove in the smooth porch floor. This had been her spot since we left in April. Now it was October and the turning leaves were falling. She sat in this rocker looking out over the hills and waiting for his return through spring greening and summer heat. Her family thought she'd gone crazy. What are you doing, her sister asked, pulling guard duty? It won't get home any sooner. Maybe that was true, but she would wait right here for her son to return. He would know where to find her. He knew that she would be right here in her favorite chair, waiting. The autumn air was crisp, but she was comfortable in her sweater. Made the year Buddy was 12. She'd made it for him, and he'd worn it a few times before he outgrew it. My, that boy grew fast. Good thing, too, since he'd had to take on man's work when Coy died of pneumonia. They went through some hard times, but Buddy never faltered with his determination to take care of her and the farm. Lunchtime came and passed, but she did not notice. She had little appetite anyway, and with rations and things so scarce, she didn't need to be wasting food by fixing meals that could go uneaten. The mail arrived, but brought nothing of interest, and the afternoon drifted slowly to evening. Mom? Surely, that was Buddy's voice. But of course it could not be. She must have dozed off. She sat up straight in the chair and listened intently. Mom! There. She had not been hearing That was his voice, certainly. She stood and strained her eyes in the gathering dust. Where was he? How did he manage to come home? Was she losing her mind? A soft breeze rustled dry leaves along the fence. She stood on the porch listening for an hour, but she heard nothing more. Her shoulders drooping, she turned to enter the house. It was time to leave your chores. The hall was dim. She lit a lamp to chase away the shadows. Her, her hand flew to her mouth when the spreading light revealed a hat on the table. His hat. The one from his uniform that he wore on the day he left on the train. How had it come to be on the table? She surely would have seen it before now. Was he here? Buddy. Steps sounded on the porch. A knock at the door. Two men in uniform stood there. Miss Benford, may we come in? She reeled against the table, then straightened and turned to the door. Come in, gentlemen. Can I get you some coffee? As she passed the table, she noticed that the hat had disappeared. Before I would feed a war or soldiers. But 
Oh wait, there stands my son in uniform, a soldier for 20 years or more, a warrior. My garden sends fruits and vegetables to his table. My absolute stand is qualified by one who stands beside me, quiet in his uniform, unflinching in his duty, while I try to explain myself and my garden. called Ghost Out. I write a lot of rhyming poetry, but every now and again one of weird The whippoorwill song is silent, the, only, the lovely owl calls up the night. Purple shadows of the gloaming pass just beyond the window's light. Faces brighten at the fireside, backs huddled to the gathered dark, and one voice raises in a story about the hour and spirits walk. When lonely careless maidens might meet danger from some unknown hand, and strong men suffer deadly ends from Satan's roving wicked band. The clock rings in the midnight hour, the voice is quiet, and no one talks. All minds are on the black outside, and wonder if some evil stops. But blue paint guards the window frames, and salt is scattered round about. Blue bottles dangle on the trees to keep the evil spirits out. I don't know if any of you heard of blue bottle trees or bottle trees in Folklore is a lot of Appalachian belief. Blue is a powerful color against bad things. So painting the wooden frames blue will keep evil spirits from coming in the house. And blue bottles hanging in the trees, see the evil spirits are attracted to the blue, and they'll go down inside the bottles, and then they can't get out. It also helps to have a mirror on your porch because they will look at themselves in the mirror and they just get so entranced with themselves that they'll stay there until daylight comes and then you're safe. Or you can put a red assault around your house but they don't cross salt. My youngest son did that one time. I wonder where in the world that circle of dead grass comes. <laughs> he said he was scared. And there's a lot of blue, and actually in the south there's a color that people paint on their portraits, and they call it paint blue. Paint being a word for haunt. And they'll paint their portraits that. And you can buy it at the store, it's called paint blue. <laughs> so I'm not the only crazy person in the world. <laughs> called Mind Disaster. I think it won an award here. Thunder and lightning darkened the day we buried my mother. Icy gray rain mingled with salt tears and far away back home in West Virginia, other tears were falling on the stormy earth in the mining community called Sago. Thirteen miners were trapped in the blackness, deeper and yet still in the same uncaring earth we dug to hold my mother's casket. Thunder drowned our graveside sobs, but even so, we could hear the wails and cries of Sago. Miraculous news awaited when we returned to my father's house. The miners were rescued, and everywhere, even in our house of sorrow, the people rejoiced. Some good had come on this dark day, it seemed. The storm lifted, if only for a moment, to let the light shine through. I will not forget the horror of the following hours of the terrible mistake. The miners, all except one, were dead. All of them, save one young man in critical condition. Sadness swamped us. There was no miracle after all. That night I lay in bed beside my father, who could not sleep alone after 60 years of marriage. My tears soaked my mother's pillow. Tears for her, for me, for men and families I did not know, for my mother's life well lived, and for minors everywhere. One and a half years later, I journeyed to Sago, the memorial created for the lost minors, complete the circle of my morning. 
but people were there, and coal trucks from the Sago mine rolled past, loaded with coal. This one is, every morning I would drive to work. I worked in Charleston, so it was like, you know, 52 miles to work, 52 miles home. Every morning I would pass this little house where these two people would sit there on the porch with a little red table between them. And they'd be sitting there sipping their coffee and smoking cigarettes. And they just fascinated me, especially that bright red table right there between them. A little plain house with that bright red table. So this one is about the red table. They smoked. They drank coffee from matching mugs. And every morning they watched the traffic on the road below their house. The red table glowed between them. Every morning I looked to see if they were there with their coffee mugs and cigarettes. They always were. It was ritual. Them on the porch with smoke drifting ghostly into the morning air. And me in my car passing by these people I did not know except by their red table and their porch. I envied them, you know, because they were content. It took no more than hot coffee, cigarettes, and a red table to make them so. While I was busy being the traffic, they watched every morning when they sipped and smoked. I have been watching for them this spring. I wanted to see them sitting by their red table, smoking and sipping and watching me go by. But they are not there this year. The red table is on the porch, and the chairs are tumbled about, as if a strong wind had shaken them from their places. I'm happy to report it's all straight up now. <laughs> I was scared. <laughs> I was like, what are you those people? I liked them. I was thinking of this one. My, my husband was raised in the coal camp. He told me about going out on Sunday mornings with his bucket along the railroad track to pick up the coal that fell from their coal train as they went by to take home and use for house coal. Some of you have done this or know of this. And Sunday mornings were a good time to do it because no one from the coal companies was likely to be about to see you because you weren't supposed to do that, that was stealing, so you weren't supposed to. This is called Coal Held the Mall. In a tiny coal town, a toe-headed boy dragged a tin bucket up an embankment, the steel ribbon tracks to pick up black coal that fell from the trains that came from the mines, the traveler rails to carry the coal over river and road through forests and fields, to the big river to load into barges, pushed by a tug down the long river, to power plant docks to feed in the furnaces, and burned to white heat that sent electricity to town and the city and tiny coal towns where the boy with his bucket gathered the coal littered by rail tracks that lead to the mine where his father's sharp pick cuts loose the mountain to load in the cars that hook to the engines that choke down the rails and scatters the coal for the boy to pick up to put in his bucket and take to his home to load in the grave to keep the fire burning till his father returns black from the mines sits by the fire that burns the black coal that came from the mines. In a tiny coal town where the mines took the men and the women grew old and the sons bowed to leave and the coal held them all away. I'm very fortunate to have seven sisters, five brothers and seven sisters. And the older we get, the closer the sisters have become. We have discovered in the past couple of years that we are all devoted junkers. Jump shop, engine shop, yard sales, we're there. But uh, this one is about my sisters. Deep lines etch my sisters' faces, lines of laughter, lines from tears. And their voices ring the memories of our childhood, singing in the dusty yard. While in the kitchen, our mother in her apron cooked the evening meal. How could we know that we would be the gray-haired women in the kitchen, wearing aprons and trying
trying to remember the recipe for fruitcake and what our mother told us about the kind of wine to use to preserve the sweetness. Another of our traditions, we get together every year and make fruitcake. It's called 1958. I am seven. My bike is passed down, passed around, bent up and beat up, but it rolls. And when you're eight, that's really all that matters. Golden broomstead ripples in heat, shimmers in the vacant lot. Blue flower chicory lines the road and closes its petals in resignation. It is August. I am riding around our block, along the sidewalk in front of the houses, and kept gardens and trees bending under the weight of ripe damsons. Tar bottles glisten like my mother's jet earrings, and pop under my tires like hot applesauce on the captain's stove in Grandma Compton's kitchen. I pass behind her house, her orchard of apple trees as old as she is, then to the gravel road and the old dump that provides habitat for dragonflies and bamboo, a hiding place for girls with sweaty hair and bare feet. I watch the dragonfly skim over algae and dream of flying, cool in the water's reflection, into the shadows of hidden places where my mother's voice will not reach me. Back on my bike, I ride into the shadow of mulberries, maples, apples, and ash. Dust turns me golden and ghost-like, a mirage that shimmers in the five o'clock heat. 1958. Granny Sue Holstein can be found online at her blog, Granny Sue's News and Reviews. She has a couple of other blogs which you can find linked from that blog, which you can find linked from our website, podcast.wvwriters.org. She has two CDs of her stories, Mountain Story, Mountain Song, and Beyond the Grave, Ghost Stories and Ballads from the Mountains, just in time for Halloween here. You can find them on her website there or at amazon.com. You can also hear an earlier interview I did with Granny Sue on this very podcast way back in episode 15, also linked at our site. Granny Sue's going to be around at this year's West Virginia Book Festival there at the Civic Center in Charleston. We're going to be there as well as I mentioned, so come on by and pick up your entry form. I'll be there because I'm going to be introducing our very own Steve Goff during the panel discussion that West Virginia Writers is producing called A Quest for Humor, West Virginia Style. I'm going to be recording that discussion as well, so if you're not there to see it in person, you can find it here in a future podcast and possibly even a vidcast. Our opening voiceover is provided by Marcus Fowler. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker, whose albums can be found via popswalker.com and cdbaby.com. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded and assembled atop a hill in Mercer County.